Hey folks, it's Michael Shelley here. So about a year ago, September 13th, 2014, I had P.F. Sloan on the program. Now he's somebody I'd wanted to have on for a while, and I finally tracked down some contact information. And I first sort of had asked around, is he... You know, is he on Earth? You know, is he... Because I'd heard lots of stories about him, and there's a bunch of stories of sort of different bands kind of pilgrimaging to his house and trying to get him to to play and him being really reticent to play new songs or making demands that weren't right or just not being into it. Although, throughout the years, there are stories of him doing sets of his old music and I didn't know what to believe, and he's a guy whose story, his real story, is bigger than life. But the way he tells his story is perhaps even bigger than that. It's sort of hard to figure out exactly what's real and what's not. He had a sort of a different belief system. You know, I talked to a musician who had worked with him recently, and they told me that uh, they were talking about the Beatles, and he asked if he ever had met John Lennon, and P.F. Sloan replied... Yes, many times. And the musician said, oh, where was this? And P.F. Sloan said, indifferent vapors. So he believed you could meet people in vapors, and maybe you can, but I never have. And uh, it's unusual. He was an unusual guy. So uh, finally I, I arranged to talk to him, and he was just the nicest guy. You know, he was kind of sweet and humble and had a thankful attitude. I think he realized that his life was kind of full of trouble and a different path, and he was, I think, just happy to have what he had and uh, to be going forward. And then he played this set in October at the uh, Ponderosa Stomp in New Orleans, and, you know, I didn't know what to expect, and it was really pretty good. He he played a great selection of all these amazing songs he wrote, and, uh, you know, he just worked with everybody. I mean, here's some of the people that I was just listening to who either did a song of his or he produced or played guitar on something. Of course, he's got his own solo records, but uh, The Fifth Dimension, Herman's Hermits, The Fantastic Baggies is really just him, Bruce and Terry, uh, The Turtles, of course, The Street Cleaners, Tommy Rowe, Terry Black and Margaret... Uh, the Association, of course, the Bangles covered him, Del Shannon, the Kingsmen, Jan and Dean, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, uh, Sandy Nelson, Johnny Rivers, the Searchers, the Grassroots. Did I say the Grassroots, which were, again, really just him in the beginning? So it's really an, inc- it's an incredible list, and, uh, and he had some sort of ups and downs in his life. Uh, there's this book that he wrote, and it's full of these crazy stories, and... Uh, so anyways, at this gig at the Ponderosa Stomp, he, he was backed up in part by Deke Dickerson. And uh, I thought, well, as a tribute, let's talk to Deke, because this was just a little while ago, you know, less than two months ago. Uh, let's, let's talk to Deke and see what it was like to put this show on and what, what frame of mind he was in, you know, just before he passed away. So we're going to hear from Deke Dickerson. This was recorded September 13th, 2000. No, it was recorded November 21st, 2015, and then we'll hear uh, uh, an encore of my conversation with P.F. Sloan from September 13th, 2014. There you have it, folks. Another uh, another really American legend, number one hit maker, passes away. Uh, here it is, Deke and then P.F. Sloan.
There's Bruce and Terry. Uh, a song uh, written by P.S. Sloan there. And uh, like I said earlier, joining us on the telephone, Deke Dickerson, welcome back to uh, the program. Of course, one of my favorite songwriters, performers, music makers. Uh, and, but today we're sort of here to talk about something a little more on the on the downside. You were the last guy, I guess, to, to play with uh, P.F. Sloan, and it was at the uh, recent uh, Ponderosa Stomp, August, uh, October 2nd, just really a little while ago. That's that's right. Can you hear me? Am I coming in clear? You're coming in five by five. Okay, good deal. Uh, I mean, yeah. Well, uh, we had this show at the Ponderosa Stomp, and uh, as as far as I know, I know that he he went out and he did a few things over the years where he played a couple of songs here and there. But uh, as far as I know, that was really kind of like the only time that he ever did a a real career retrospective, going back doing Fantastic Baggies songs and all the well-known hits and all that. And then good grief, man, you know, like less than six weeks later, the guy's dead. Yeah. I mean, he did, he, he certainly looked a little disheveled, but I kind of just felt that was his, his thing, but he didn't look like a guy who was about to, to pass away at all. And he seemed to enjoy himself, although it's hard to tell because he really was kind of an unusual guy. He was a guest on the show once and I read his book and it's full of these very odd stories. I mean, he really lived a life, uh, that was full of trouble and full of just a different belief system, I think, than, yeah. than, than most people. So I know you got together with him. You went over to his house and stuff. What was that whole preparation thing like? Well, you know, again, it was kind of shrouded in mystery because uh, nobody had ever convinced him to do all the, the early stuff. And, you know, we even got him to do that cool, that trash yeah. uh, by the street cleaners. And uh, so... I, I figured I'd better go over to his house to go over some of that stuff just because, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it if he, he couldn't pull it off. And um, it turned out to be one of the most fun afternoons of my whole life because we just sat there strumming acoustic guitars, playing and singing, him telling me stories and stories, and it just went on for hours, and, and it wound up being great. I mean, it's nice because I think in some ways he maybe hadn't, completely come to terms with, you know, that older side of himself. I think a lot of times, you know, people think, I want to play my new songs. You know, that was me when I was 20. Right. Why, why would anyone want to hear that? And, and I understand that, but, it, you know, the Ponderosa Stop is kind of a special occasion that does kind of often get people to open up uh, a thing that, that doesn't get opened up. I mean, was his house like um, a museum to himself, or was did he have cool old stuff around, or was it bare? Did he look poor, rich? Well, you know, he had a house in Santa Monica, which I'm not sure how much a house like that would go for, but it's, you know, let's just put it this way. It's a it's a heck of a lot more than buying a house in Iowa. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was just a normal house. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you know the story about how he was completely swindled out of his songwriting and publishing royalties uh, back in the, the 60s. By his ex-partner Steve Barry, he told me the whole story, and it was really kind of sorted. Yeah, I'm, so it, yeah, I'm you know, the, Steve I'm, Barry. Uh, Steve Barry, I think, has a, a house up in the hills, probably worth millions. And uh, and Phil, who really wrote all the songs, uh, just kind of lived in an average house. Yeah, he he on this show, he sort of said that they showed him pictures of like dismembered bodies and said this will be you and your whole family if you don't sign here but he didn't specifically say it was steve uh, uh on the air but that's uh yeah so he basically lost all his money and we're talking to all his rights to these masters and these are songs 
you know, everybody did the, I mean, people forget, you know, the searchers, the turtles, Barry Maguire, the grassroots, Gary Lewis and the playboys, the fantastic baggies, Jane, uh, Jan and Dean, the Del Shannon, the Kingsman, Herman hermits, the bangles, the association. I mean, it's, it's incredible. All those people were just having huge hits. And we're talking about at a time when having a hit meant selling a lot of records too. You know, it was a lot yeah, of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, and, and just to, to touch on what you were talking about before, I meant to say this. You know, he kind of had a sea change in his whole style and way of thinking and everything around 65 where he decided he wasn't going to write lighthearted teenage songs anymore and he was going to write these sort of profound social statements. And, uh, you know, it, I'm, a, I'm a Gemini, so for me it's all good. I, I like the early stuff. I like the later stuff. Uh, but I think for him, it took him a long time to come to grips with the fact that the early stuff might actually be good as well, you know. So uh, it was it was kind of funny when we were rehearsing That's Cool, That's Trash, which is uh, just a great kind of snotty garage song from the early 60s. And uh, he said, you know, I, I listened to the lyrics today, and I have to admit it's pretty clever lyrics for a 15-year-old to come up with. <laughs> So, you know, he he kind of finally came around to seeing that, that some of that early stuff had merit, too, and I'm glad that we were able to talk him into doing it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a great set. I mean, you could, you know, it's always a good situation when you have an audience who's so behind, you know, they so want somebody to succeed. There's not one person there going, you know, show me what you got. It was a complete love thing. And I think, you know, but still, you could tell that he was a little bit, not embarrassed isn't quite the right word, but... You know, he was he he wasn't quite sure himself. I mean, what was he like backstage, right before and right after the set? Well, he was pleased with the set afterwards. I can tell you that much. Um, you know, I, I think he was a little nervous, but uh, but he was he, he told me that he was just grateful that he had a good band and knew all the songs and, and all that because I think he had had some experiences where he had done things and you know the backing band didn't know the songs or whatever. Um, but yeah, he I think that he had a great time and I know that he sent me one email afterwards saying that you know, he thought we did a great job and the show went really well and and you know, the next email I sent him was, "Hey Phil, I, I heard you had cancer." And and he he never wrote me back and then almost instantly after that he was he was gone. Yeah, wow. I just yeah, I mean it's weird. Uh, you know, same thing happened when Alan Toussaint died. It's just like we just weird, you know. I don't know. Something just just wrong about it. But I ever, you know, just I guess if you die when you're like ninety, then it's okay. But anything younger than that, it's uh, it's strange. Especially a guy like that who still had music in him, I you know, or still had some power to to go out and perform for folks. You know, so we're talking about he he had all his money stolen or whatever. Uh, so you, I mean, you could tell there was that he was unhappy or, uh, you know, there, there had been trauma in his life. I think you could tell that talking to the guy. Uh, but I guess there was reason for, for that, at least in his head there was. But spending, a, I mean, did he seem angry, bitter, full of, you know, because I think he was trying to live a life that was kind of with meditation and love. And could you, what was it like being Yeah, with him? well, I, I was going to say just a second ago that, um, when you hear the stories about his life and all the, the crazy stuff that happened, uh, you know, including not leaving the house for 12 years during the 70s, um, it's kind of a miraculous that he lived to be 70 years old. 
Um, so that being said, I think that he was grateful that, you know, he was given that many years to, uh, to, to, you know, to finally come around and experience some sort of peace in his life and enjoy music again and all that. Cause I think there was a really long period of time where he couldn't enjoy music or couldn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was sort of a miracle the guy lived that long in, to begin with, <laughs> that's considering one, all that. That's one way to look at it. So he was, you know, he played, I think he plays the guitar intro on California Dreaming, and he plays, you know, a lot of guitar and a lot of records, and I, I think some sessions, you know, that he didn't write or produce, he just played guitar. Could you see some kind of, uh, you know, guitar genius in there, uh, just sitting with him in the kitchen? Was there some style, something you picked up? Well, absolutely. I, I was really blown away at what a good guitar player he was, and I, I knew that he, I knew that he was a guitar player, but I didn't really realize that he was at that level. And uh, you know, I remember we were we were going through some of the songs, and and I said, "Hey, are you are you playing an F sharp minor against my D?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah. It gives it a different voice with uh, with this note in there and that note in there." And I thought, "Wow, this guy's." He's really sharp, you know, hmm. and so I, I don't think that he has gotten a lot of credit for the guitar stuff that he's done. But then when he told me the story about coming up with the intro to California Dreamin' and then he played it for me, it's like, holy crap, man. <laughs> I've heard that on the radio how many tens of thousands of times. I never had any idea that was P.S. Sloan playing yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, hooks, What is a, what's the value of a hook, you know? Boy, you know, it's just uh yeah, when you can come up with that stuff, it's amazing. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's just a really unique guy. You know, his book is full of stuff that is, you know, frankly, sort of just unbelievable. But you know, when when I talked to him, I I, I didn't say you know that's unbelievable. This guy said something like, "So what do you say to people who don't understand you know talking to Beethoven or whatever you know?" And he was you know he just he's like that's just what I do, and he seemed you know just that's me, and that's just the way it is, you know. Yeah. I don't know, you know, just just a, a, a truly unique guy. Do you know? Did he have kids? Did he have an ex-wife? Did he have any? Did he have family, friends close by? I don't think he ever had any kids, I mean, and I don't, I don't think, think so. he was ever married. Although he had, you know, I know at least one of his uh, ex-girlfriends was posting on my face, Facebook page about their relationship. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think in in many ways he's a lot like Brian Wilson. You know, he went through a lot of this. Uh, really really dark periods of his life and i'm sure that was really hard on his uh, relationships yeah staying in bed for two years yeah i think he was real close to his mom too which somehow doesn't surprise me so did he have cool old junk in his house no no not at all i, I don't think that he escaped from uh the 60s and the 70s with with anything really um you know he he told me one story about and this is probably in the book, you probably read it, that he was actually institutionalized in the late 60s. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting the right characters. I believe he told me it was Clive Davis, uh, you know, the guy who discovered Whitney Houston and so many others, who looked him up in the institution and got they sent a limo to the to the asylum picked him up and he said that they constructed him a psychedelic decorated rubber room with a piano in it for him to write songs on and uh and so for years he was in there just taking all these 
medications and trying to write songs for Clive Davis. And you sort of realize after hearing stories like that, like, yeah, you can't really save mementos from (laughs) your, your glory days when you're in the institution and being put in a psychedelic rubber room. You know? yeah. I mean, yeah, who knows how much of that is true, or maybe it's all true. It's just, it's it's so bigger than life, it's hard to know, you know? Uh, well, you know, I think I've talked to a few people that said that his story's changed over the years, but I, he's one of those guys that I can assure you there was truth in almost everything, because, you know, the the punchline to the psychedelic rubber room story is that he was on this label. Uh, oh man, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Um, it was a spinoff of one of the majors that Clive Davis was doing, and they actually put out an album in '72 or something like that on Phil. And it's a really dark, you know, personal kind of album. And he, he said, you know, Clive Davis lost all this money on him, basically trying to record this album and you know having him writing songs in this psychedelic rubber room but then there was a guy who sent in a demo to the label and phil said that he just kept lobbying for this guy to be signed he said this is a hit it's going to be a huge hit you need to sign this guy and it turned out to be uh albert hammond's it never rains in southern california which was like you know the number one song of 1973 and so after he told me that story, I went and looked. It's like, yeah, yeah, that guy was on the same label as that, that album from 72 by Phil. So, you know, there there has to be, you know, at least part of the truth in that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's at least, I I, I, I think you're right. There's at least something. Who knows? Yeah. if You know, it could all be true. It's just, it's just impossible to know. Uh, Deke Dickerson well, is here, and we're talking about... Uh, P.F. Sloan, and uh, I want to remind folks you can go to DeekDickerson.com for information about Deke and November 28th at the Rockabilly Extravaganza at the Riverside, California <laughs> Airport. And That's then, right. Tell uh, all the Jersey people to come out to that. <laughs> well, hey, people listen to this all over the world, my friend. And uh, people in Seattle and uh, Portland, he's coming up there. And then Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, et cetera, et cetera. Check uh, Deke's website for... You're always traveling. I mean, you are like a frequent flyer lunatic. Well, uh, the bills keep showing up in my mailbox, so I have to keep figuring out a way to pay them. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Well, this has been really interesting. I mean, it's you know we can read all the liner notes uh, in the world, but to, to get a firsthand uh, you know uh, story from somebody who literally was in the guy's house just a few weeks ago is really a, a treasure. And I appreciate you waking up super early and uh, doing it for us this oh, that's, morning. That's all right, <laughs> and uh, you know it's it's sort of bittersweet with Phil because you know it, it's really sad that he's gone but on the other hand it's really great that he sort of came out and he did this last hurrah and he played this show and considering all that he had been through I thought he did a great job and got through it all really really well that was really great and you know as you know like Freddie Freddie Boom Boom Cannon came out you know did the, the next set and he was like you believe that guy wrote all them songs you know and it's yeah it's really true it's just like wow one guy wrote all them songs you know it's just it was amazing, you know. It's just, and we'll have the songs always. Uh, Deke, I hope you'll come back or call in next time. You're you got a record, or you're going to be in New York or something because we, you're one of our favorites. Well, thank you very much for having me, man. And uh, 
appreciate you doing this tribute to Phil. You're welcome. Let's hear from, I got the Kingsman version of That's Cool, That's Trash. We'll hear that. Deke, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you, Michael. Sure. Jeff Sloan, welcome to WFMU. We're so pleased to have you. You've got a new book out called What Exactly the Matter with Me, a autobiography, and a new record out called My Beethoven, uh, nine original songs based on the real life of Beethoven. But it all started, I think, in New York City. You were born in New York City before. I mean, you're so closely associated with California, but you were born in New York City and your dad, I think, was a pharmacist and moved you guys out there in 1957. Does New York City, was it in your blood uh, at that young an age at all? Yes, it was. Yeah, and and New Jersey as well, Union City. Used to go there every Sunday for uh, family dinners. So, yeah, uh, the East, New York and New Jersey really are in my blood. So was it a little culture shock moving to West Hollywood? <sighs> it was a long time ago to remember it. it. It was a new start. You know, I was one of those uh, 
uh, I was one of those kind of kids in school that, uh, I don't know, got under the teacher's nerves. So it, it felt like a new start more than a, a culture shock. Were, were your, was there music in your house? Were your folks record buyers, radio listeners? No, surprisingly not. No, there really wasn't any. There really wasn't any indication that there was any music in, in, in the family there at all. So where did you get the idea? Uh, where did you get the love of, of pop music and decide that might be something you're interested in? How young were you? I must have been about six. My parents entered me in a. Uh, a New York State singing contest when I was six years old, and I came in second place singing a song, Me and My Teddy Bear. <laughs> and, and so your dad uh, bought you a guitar at some point, and I don't know if this happened when he bought you the guitar, but you ran into Elvis Presley at a Hollywood music store. Is that correct? That is correct. I met him when I was 12, and he taught me how to play Love Me Tender on the guitar. And uh, and really taught me about love. Six months later, I naturally auditioned uh, for an all-black record label called Aladdin Records and got signed to them. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. You you ran to Elvis in the store and he taught you in the store that song. Yes, yes. He was upstairs uh, having his uh, guitar fixed, and I was downstairs asking the man behind the counter. Uh, you know, what do I play? How can I play these five other strings? I only knew, I only knew how to play on a one-string broken ukulele. <laughs> uh, was it? I mean, was he a mind-blowing kind of a guy? I mean, he seems like such a huge force of personality. Was he like that back then? Yes, and uh, I didn't know such things. Uh, hadn't really experienced anything like love. Uh, it, it was less about celebrity. I mean, I realized who he was immediately because my sister and my mother were both in love with him. But the amount of love that he poured out on me just uh, opened up uh, opened up some sort of love center inside myself and a love for music. How interesting. It's kind of the fulcrum for, for starting you on your way. Do you think he saw something in you that made him want to to touch you in some way? Who knows? But you know, uh, I'm an Elvis file, and I love to hear stories from anybody who's met him. And it seems to be pretty consistent that he just poured out his love on on everyone. Amazing. So, like you said, you you get signed at age 12 to Aladdin, which, like you said, is it's in its last days. It's it's been an all R&B label pretty much, and I guess they're trying to sort of to stay with it and and do some sort of more rock and roll stuff. So you you made a few singles, uh, Aladdin and the and the Mart uh, label. My favorite of those, I think, is probably She's My Girl, which is kind of like a Richie Valens, Chris Montez meets Elvis sort of thing. How did that happen, and who's playing on those early records? Uh, yeah, that was really something. Uh, that was, uh, oh, uh, well, I think it was Bill Pittman on Dano Electric Bass, and I think he played on on the original Richie Valens record. I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, but uh, I'm trying to remember the drummer's name. He was... He he had a, a very famous hit called Teen Beat, Sandy Nelson. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, I was I was I was in love with Richie Valens. So yeah, it was Richie Valens meets Elvis. 
<laughs> and what were the expectations for those very, very early records? Uh, for the label or for myself? For, for either, for both. Well, for the label, you know, they had, uh, they had Jen and, and, uh, and Arnie. They had uh, Bruce and Terry. Uh, they had a young, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, who was one of the co-founders of Bread. They had Mel Carter. Um, they were expecting big things. They, they, they seemed to be a, a magnet for, uh, which is curious because Jan and Dean being on the uh, Arwen record label, which was Mark Records, and Bruce and Terry, I would wind up following them. Uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, within a few years, I'd be working with Bruce and Terry and Janet Dean. Yeah, it's funny how, how small a world it becomes. Uh, by 1961, you're working as a staff uh, writer uh, at Screen Gems. How did you make that move? And you're still so, so young. How did it happen? Persistence. <laughs> uh, just absolute persistence. I would, I would go every day uh, from junior high school I would go over to Screen Gems Music and sit on the couch, and uh, <laughs> I had a 150-pound tape recorder with me <clears throat> with 150 songs, and uh, I would sit there every day, and they would just walk around me like I became a piece of furniture there. You know, It took about six months, but uh, eventually they invited me in to listen to the songs that I'd written, and uh, one of the executives from Alden music from New York was there and, and he decided to sign me for $10 a week. <laughs> and were those early songs, uh, are some of them songs we know or were they all sort of uh, things that you... Well, nothing goes to waste. That's what I've learned in, in music. Nothing goes to waste. A melody, a song idea, a rhyme couplet. I must have written about 185 songs that were on the tape by the time I was 15. Yeah, some of those became Kick That Little Foot Sally Ann and uh, Unless You Care by Terry Black. But nothing goes to waste with musicians. So when you were writing these songs, was it in your head, this one might be good for Bobby Darren or this might be good for Frank Sinatra or for, you know, the coasters or whatever? Or were you just writing the songs from you to the, the, the guitar? Well, there were two things. One was songs that I would write on my own at, at 15 or 16, and, and I would say to the bosses, like a song like Kick the Little Foot Sally Ann, I said, you know, I, I wrote this for Harry Belafonte. So they would send it to Harry Belafonte. But basically, my job was to, they would come in in the morning and, and put a list of songs, you know, the Drifters, Leslie Gore, whoever, you know, she needs a follow-up, you know, so write a song almost exactly like the hit she had, but a little bit different. So you begin to learn the craft, and you begin to really study the lyrics, and you know the artist, and you begin to learn the craft of it. And, you know, it's a great, it's a great place to start by mimicking everyone, <laughs> everyone who's ever written a song. So you're working, churning out these songs, and at some point I think you meet Steve Barry, who becomes your your partner for quite a while. How old were you when you met him? And uh, was it somebody's idea that you guys would work together? Well, it was. I was uh, 16. Uh, I think he was 21 or 22. He was married. Uh, he was uh, working at a record store uh, in Los Angeles, and he had begun working with, uh, oh, one of the girls from the Teddy Bears. They had made a record, and 
he went up to Screen Gems to get a record deal. They didn't want to buy the record, but they signed him as a writer, and they threw him into my little cubbyhole, and they said, you two write together. Problem was, was that Steve didn't know how to write music. He couldn't play an instrument, and uh, but, uh, you know, none of the magic really could have happened without him being there for me. How very so. Let's say, you say you're making ten dollars a week, and I'm not sure exactly how publishing worked back then, or really how it works now. And I'm sure the listeners would love to know. So, how did income work at that point? If you were making records that were getting released, did you get paid per record or a bonus or anything like that, or were you getting your BMI money or mechanical royalties? How did it work? Well, being 16 years old, um, everything goes to court. So all the money was held in trust, and uh, I wasn't allowed to touch it till I'm 21. Okay, so you and Steve Barry begin a huge role, and one of the the things that you guys do, besides writing lots and lots of songs, is you, you start recording under different names, group names, duo names, Philip and Steven, the Rally Packs, the Wildcats, the Street Cleaners, the Rinkin Surfside Band, the Lifeguards. What was the culture that that allowed that to happen? Was it just, let's see if we can get a hit by just throwing a lot out there? You have to try and wrap your head around this. This wasn't about hits. This was simply about a small little, small little publishing West Coast company trying to sell masters. In other words, uh, in other words, they weren't trying to get a hit. They were just trying to sell the master for a specific amount of money, and then that was it. They'd move. They would then sell me as you know all these different groups. And, uh, you know, they were able to sell me to all these different labels uh, and get money up front, which the company got. uh, And that's as far as it went. So the money making, the business plan here was just to have you record and then they would sell those masters and and keep the fee and and have you just do that as much as possible, almost uh, in a disposable way? Yes, exactly. And so were you using a studio owned by Screen Gems? Well, you know, we started working at at, uh, Western Recorders where basically all the the later in 64, 65, later all the hits were coming out of uh, Western Recorders. But basically these were very inexpensive records. I played all the instruments and uh, it was just, you know, $15 an hour, you know, for studio costs. You know, I would get Darlene Love to sing background for me for fifteen dollars. Uh, Glenn Campbell, you know, all the uh, the Wrecking Crew, Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, you know, all working for fifteen dollars an hour. Were those demo rates, or how did you finagle exactly. that? Exactly, exactly demo rates. Yeah, they they never did anything union. <laughs> it sounds. I mean, it sounds like it must have been a super exciting time. I mean, you're so young at this point. Was did it seem unusual to you, or or no? No, I I uh, I was in love with learning the the craft. Obviously, you know, you can't listen to Little Richard's records or Elvis's early records or Chuck Berry's records without it. It's sort of rearranging your DNA. I mean, to be honest with you, those records were so exciting that the idea of actually coming up with something original that exciting was the goal. 
that's every that's still the goal i think you know <laughs> yes it should be yeah so soon uh soon after at this point lou adler who also works at that company starts using you for jan and dean who he manages and for some other things and i and you get that hit uh kick that little foot sally and you start arranging playing on some of those big jan and dean hits and i i believe that's you singing the falsetto part on the little old lady from pasadena is that right Yes, that is right. I actually did all the falsettos after Honolulu Lulu, all the Jan and Dean hits. And then Steve, Barry, and I would, would be singing background as the Fantastic Baggies. You know, it got to a point later in Jan's career that uh, Jan would actually have me sing his part as well. <laughs> nice work, if you can get it, yeah. Wow. Okay, you mentioned the Fantastic Baggies. This was sort of a, a surf group that was really, again, just you and Steve, very much in the Beach Boys thing. How huge were the Beach Boys at that point? And again, was this your idea, or did somebody say, it, you know, you, you need to start a surf band? The Beach Boys were just beginning to catch fire, but Jan and Dean were the big stars. They had Linda, you know, li- you know Jan and Dean take Linda surfing, then they had Surf City. So the Beach Boys were just beginning to happen. I started writing surf songs, and uh, again, the record label said, you know, we could make money just by selling them as another group to Imperial. But what happened was was that the Fantastic Baggies actually caught fire with Tell Em I'm Surfing and Summer Means Fun. So, you know, the label didn't want us to become record stars, so they had to get rid of the fantastic baggies but kept us you know singing background for jan and dean mm. some of the fantastic baggies records are just really fun uh did you at at that point was there a sort of a struggle of whether or not to become an artist or to stay behind the scenes for you um i had wanted to be a recording artist i mean remember i started recording uh at 13 for aladdin so you know i had uh I had I had the dream of of going out and performing, but the label found that you know I was a a much more important property, you know, just being a songwriter and producer. So they kept me away from that as much as they could until the birth of P.F. Sloan happened. Hmm. So the next few years, you guys uh, have t- tons of hits and tons of songs. On records and tons of covers of of the hits, you become really a sensation in, in that mid 1960s period. Uh, Eve of Destruction gets written, uh, Sins of the Family, You Baby for the Turtles, Must to Avoid for Herman's Hermits, Take Me for What I'm Worth the Searchers, Secret Agent Man for Johnny Rivers, etc., etc. And like I said, Eve of Destruction, which is a number one hit. Tell me what your your daily routine was like what was your writing routine how did you pump out so many songs i mean it's it's really mind-boggling because when you look at the dates that these are all released in it's it's not a long period it's it's a three-year period of of around 30 chart records and 250 songs recorded it it was it it wasn't until the birth of pf sloan where steve barry and i were you know i was writing a lot of these songs by myself, you know, kick a little foot and unless you care. And some of the songs Steve and I would write together, but it wasn't until P.F. Sloan came that happened one night. Uh, this consciousness came into me and I wrote five songs one night 
Eva Destruction, Sins of the Family, Take Me for What I'm Worth, etc., etc. I played them for the head of the company, and uh, they threw them in the wastebasket. They said, you know, these are not songs that we can publish. So all of a sudden, there was a split in my life. I wanted to write this kind of lyric and music, but I still had to be writing with Steve Barry, which was pop, and I love pop. I love all kinds of music. But when Eva Destruction actually took off and uh, it caused a riff in the, in the company because they didn't want P.F. Sloan to become a star. And at the same time, his songwriting and his, his music was selling so much that they didn't know what to do. So it, was, it became a weird situation. Well, tell me again about sort of the birth of P.F. Sloan. You were this guy writing, in some cases, novelty records or follow-up records, and then you had a awakening to to write a different kind of song. I mean, what was the physical sensation that happened to you? I was I was born. I I I felt as if something magical had happened, and uh, I remember waking my mother up at three o'clock in the morning wanting to read her the lyrics to Eva Destruction and Sins of a Family, saying, Mom, something wonderful has happened. And he said, you know, Shh, you'll wake your father up, go back to bed. <laughs> so, you know, basically that, that kind of was the story. Shh, you know, don't, don't mention P.S. Sloan. <laughs> you know? from, from, uh, uh, me, me. And you're 19 years old at this time. I mean, uh, stardom is hard for, for mature people. Were you, you know, how were you handling it? As best I could. I mean, as I, you know, there wasn't much support. It sort of happened all on its own. I mean, Eva Destruction was not the A side of the record. It was the B side. The A side was called What's Exactly the Matter with Me? And it just so happened that the B side took off. The record label was unhappy about it because they were getting death threats because of the lyrical content. The song was banned all over the world. And so these three partners who wanted to make money in the record business are now the victims now being, you know, getting death threats against them. So, you know, they wanted to get rid of Barry McGuire and they, they needed to get rid of P.F. Sloan. But P.F. Sloan was writing so many songs uh, and they were becoming hits. You know, they just didn't know what to do, but they didn't like it. They didn't like this hippie music. How yeah. very interesting. I mean, I, you do hear sort of stories about, especially in the earlier, earliest days of rock and roll, where, you know, many of the bigger labels sort of sat out the beginning of rock and roll, and that's why so many indies were able to get to, to score hits, because they thought it would be some sort of passing thing. And then by the time they sort of got in, you know, Mitch Miller didn't know a thing about rock and roll or these guys who were heading these labels. And it's th that's why this sort of early time is so interesting. And I think partly why a 19-year-old guy could, you know, have, have such success, because the older guys just didn't know what was going on. Was there some palpable feeling of that? Yeah, Michael, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, here's a, 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 an interesting story that most people don't know about. But after the first three number ones by the Beatles, EMI put them up for sale. <laughs> you know, they thought nobody has more than three number one records. I mean, Nat King Cole on Capitol had, you know, a number one record, Frank Sinatra. So they tried to sell the Beatles to Columbia and to RCA for $50,000, and they all turned them down. Yeah. I mean, nobody... As you're saying, nobody in the music business understood 
pop music at all, and they expected it to die. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 an ama- It's sort of really the history of America in some ways. You know, it's so <laughs> it's so interesting. Uh, so tell me, during the same time, you're playing a lot of sessions. You're playing on a lot of those records we mentioned. You know, the the, the Turtles and all those uh, Johnny Rivers, those, those records. Uh, tell me about working with those session guys. I think you play the guitar, uh, that famous guitar, in the intro of California Dream. And tell, uh, did the session guys, like you mentioned, Hal Blaine and uh, Carol Kay, Tommy Tedesco, did those folks welcome a young kid like you who could not read sheet music or how did they let you into that little select group they actually didn't it was jack nietzsche the great the great arranger when i had written kick the little foot sally ann and jack nietzsche told the wrecking crew uh he put me he had the wrecking crew in a circle and he put me in the center of the circle with my guitar, and then he told all the musicians, I want you to follow this 16-year-old kid. And uh, they looked at him like he was crazy, and they you know, all got up and walked out. <laughs> and Jack told them, look, if, unless you do what I say, you'll never work for Phil Spector again. So you know, they bit the bullet, and you know, they actually thought that I might have had something. You know, I was a very enthusiastic guitar player. So... You know, slowly they began to accept me, but you have to understand that those guys were earning their living, and they thought I was taking, I might be taking, you know, food away from their table. But I was also a record producer at 17, so I was hiring these guys, and I began to know them. And, and you know, there's nothing like hanging around uh, a musician to hear the greatest jokes in the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, you know, I realized then, you know, I really want to be a musician. I, I want to know what it feels like to be lighthearted and, and have a beautiful spirit. So I, I learned a lot from, from these, from these uh, great musicians. Tell me about the writing sessions and how disciplined were you guys? How many hours a day did it, did you write songs? Cause there's so many songs. Was it, was it tough labor or was it just something that was flowing out of you? Well, Steve was married and had a child, and he was working uh, eight hours a day at uh, a record store on Fairfax Boulevard. So I would be able to get him at my house, you know, for an hour a day. And, you know, we would we would come up with a song title, and uh, we would write two lines, and then Steve would have to go to back to work, and then I would finish the song up. <laughs> and that's literally how many, many of those songs were were written. Just, just that, that exact way. Steve would sort of help you get the inspiration, get the ball rolling, and then you would do the other eighty percent or whatever. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Steve was very, you know, uh, you know, like like a song like "Where We Unite" needed you for the grassroots. You know, Steve came up with the title for that. And and then I would just, you know, write the lyric and write the music. And did you feel that was a fair distribution of labor at that point? Or? I was a young kid, and I really thought that Steve was, you know, my older brother. And, you know, basically Steve wanted, you know, 50% of everything that I wrote as P.F. Sloan, which I didn't really think was fair, but, you know, he wound up getting that. But... You know, we were young. We didn't think we were going to succeed. I was in love with music. Uh, I wanted Steve to be successful. You know, I didn't question it until, you know, until everything collapsed. You hmm. know? So, 1965, 
you sort of start a solo career, or P.F. Sloan starts a solo career, and it's kind of, the records are great. They're some of my favorites. Uh, it's kind of a folk rock, but with a real pop feel in it, too, and it's kind of just a perfect, I think, mid-60s situation, you know, the lyrics and the feel of the songs and the way you sing them, the performances, uh, really, I think, you know, do a great job representing what was happening in, in the mid-60s. Uh, songs of Our Times, 1965, Sins of the Family, Take Me From What I'm Worth, I'd Have to Be Out of My Mind, What Am I Doing Here With You? These are all great sort of wry songs that sort of comment a little bit about what's going on. Uh, was there sort of a, a plan to sort of do folk rock, or, or was that just what was happening inside you? No, it was really happening inside me, and the idea... Uh, the P.F. Sloan first album was done in about four days. It was basically a demo album, a songwriter's demo album. When Sins of a Family got mistakenly released, and all of a sudden it started hitting the charts, the record label pulled it back. So, I mean, it hit the charts first week, I think, in the 70s, and Billboard called up and said it's going to number 40 next week, and they said, no, we're pulling the record. So they really want this P.F. Sloan artist to happen. They were trying to deal with him as a songwriter. They couldn't deal with, with me as a recording artist. You have to keep in mind that, you know, they were handling people like Johnny Rivers and Margaret and Jan and Dean, and they didn't understand this hippie music. And another thing you have to understand is that Bob Dylan wasn't really happening. You know, he wasn't selling albums. You know, so there really no, was no call for this. T tell me about all these records are coming out, and some you're a part of the making of, and some you aren't. You know, there's Turtles records and Hermit's Hermit's records, and Mel Torme is covering your songs, and like you said, Anne Margaret, and all these different people. Is it ever a weird sensation to hear a record of your of your song where someone does a great or a, a, a terrible job? Is that a weird thing? It's a weird thing. You know, I... I this may be a little bit broad to say, but any time a record producer uh, recorded the song the way I demoed it, it became a hit. When they varied away from the way that I had uh, envisioned it, uh, it didn't become a hit. You mentioned that the action in the early part of your career was in New York, and I think your rise is kind of... Uh, coincides with the rise of L.A. as kind of the center of pop music, and it's no longer New York, and that sort of Tin Pan Alley model is, you know, is kind of ending, and, uh, you know, Los Angeles becomes the place, and the Wrecking Crew, you know, so many records are, are pouring out of there. Just the energy must have been amazing to be, because just to hear so many hit records, did you get to a point where you heard, uh, uh, where you could hear a song and know, yes, this one's going to be a hit? Yeah, Michael, that that's that's something that is mind-boggling. Uh, you know, I would I would go to a producer and he'd say, Phil, you know, uh, you know, what songs do you have? And I'd say, Look, I, I have to apologize. I said, This song will only go top twenty. <laughs> and he said, Really? I said, Yeah. He said, Well, I'll take it then. Oh. And uh, yeah, it, the song only went to like twenty-one. Uh, that's but right. I I could tell when I'm writing it, and it's coming from a very deep, deep place, I mean, I could tell that that song is going to be a hit or not. I could tell by the amount of laziness within me. I mean, you know, when you're working 18, 
18, 20 hours a day, uh, I noticed that as a songwriter, I began to get a little bit lazy. In other words, in other words, the lyric on the second verse or the, or the bridge wasn't as original and as good as it could be. I just sort of skimmed through it. And those, those were good songs, but they didn't become hits. So you've got more solo records coming, more just amazing songs. And you guys start the, you and, and Steve start this group called The Grassroots. Uh, you cover this song, Let's Live For Today, which was a, a hit for a British group called The Rokes, I think. And uh, it becomes a huge hit. And soon after that, it, the end of the 60s sort of becomes the end of P.F. Sloan. What happens? I've never sort of quite understood the story. You, you sort of break up with, uh, with Steve Barry and with Lou Adler and with everybody. What happens? Well, in the book, you know, I go into a lot of detail and, and try to make it as humorous as I can. But what it came down to, Michael, was greed, uh, monstrous greed. I was earning millions of dollars for the company and they resented the fact that they had to pay me for the work. So they basically pulled a Jackie Wilson and that is they pretty much put a gun to my head and said, you know, we're going to kill you and your family unless you sign away all your rights and give us all the rights to all of your songs from now until forever and uh, we want you out of town in 24 hours or we're going to kill you. And uh, and that was the end. And this is what, 1967? 1967, yes. Uh, but but that sort of stops the money train cold there. I mean, it seems like a, a, a you know, obviously it's a strange move. Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, if you try and find the logic, here you have, let's say, I don't know, call it the golden goose. Yeah, and the gold the golden goose has been laying twenty five golden eggs, right? They're not thinking about the future; they just want the twenty five golden eggs to themselves. So they decided to kill the golden goose. And so, you, so, so you're saying this was a literal threat, and you took it very seriously? Oh yes, yes. the uh, The head of the record label was uh, from Chicago, and uh, as I talk about it in the book, he showed me pictures of distant. <laughs> body parts all over the street. And he said, you know, we have a way of, uh, of getting what we want. So uh, I, uh, I left Los Angeles and uh, was forced to leave Los Angeles. And uh, Steve Barry continued working at Dunhill. And uh, I uh, was forced to uh, move back to New York, which I did, and uh, began to live in Greenwich Village. Why didn't they threaten Steve for his half of the stuff as well? Well, you'll have to read the book about that, Michael. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a little bit complicated, but when you read when you read the book, you'll find out what happened. Basically, I was forced out and uh, forced to sign away everything, and uh, that's that's the way the uh, that's the way the play was supposed to be. I mean, legally, how much can you sign away? Can you sign away your your future? Mechanical royalties to everything? Yes, everything, yes. So if somebody uses, you know, one of your songs in a car commercial, you don't benefit at all? That's correct. That is unbelievable. Oh, but, so, but Steve but, but Steve still gets paid. Huh, that's Yeah, well, now I've got to go get the book, obviously, and figure, figure this out. Uh, do you, you still get your BMI money, I assume? 
Uh, yeah, that they couldn't have me sign away. Right, that's the one thing. So, I, But I assume that is enough to, I don't know, uh, probably for my lifestyle, live a, a decent life. Uh, was it enough to tide you over through the years? No, not really. Believe it or not, back in those days, I was only earning about $4,000 a year from uh, BMI. Wow. Well, so basically, I mean, I had to do odd jobs and, you know, began delivering beer, you know, and try to become a life insurance salesman. And, you know, eventually uh, it got to be too much and I just uh, I just broke down. Yeah. So the idea of writing songs under a different name or starting over, that was not an option for you? No. These guys no, wouldn't? I, yeah. No, the, the poet, the, the poet that was in me that, that, that became P.F. Sloan was something that I really believed in. I mean, I believed in, in P.F. Sloan as much as I believed in Elvis Presley and the Beatles and everyone else. I mean, I, I had to go follow that dream, you know, no matter where it was going to take me. Okay, so you're living in New York. You are, you're doing some, some opening act kind of stuff, but you're delivering beer and trying to get a new career going. And like you said, you just can't take it, which sounds like perhaps is the sane, the sane reaction to what had happened to you. So what, again, physically, what, what happened to you? Well, um, you know, I did get signed to Atlantic Records from, uh, from working in New York and released an album on ATCO. But I had a nervous breakdown during the making of it. I recorded it, believe it or not, at Sun Studios. That's Measure of Pleasure, right? From 68? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, it, that was a full circle thrill, you know, to have uh, Elvis's original producer down there for the sessions and Tom Dowd, who produced uh, Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. And Atco believed in me, but, you know, uh, I, I just really couldn't live away from my family and living in New York was, was a tough thing for me. And I, I just broke down. I developed uh, all sorts of illnesses, uh, some life-threatening, and became, uh, went into a state of catatonia for 12 years. Were, were you taking drugs at all? Was that part of your scene? Well, you know, the beautiful thing was, was that, you know, up until this time, there was really no drug usage, you know. Not that I want to talk about the drugs, but but Greenwich Village was a very dark place in 1968, you know, mm. and uh, you know there was a lot of there was a lot of there was a lot of heavy drug usage going on there, and you know if you wanted to earn any credibility with the New York scene, you had to be doing some of those drugs, and uh, I got involved in it. Unfortunately, um, I was able to get off of it, but you know basically I'm just a very simple home guy and you know i just missed california and i missed my family and i wasn't really i didn't feel like i was cut out you know to for this kind of lifestyle so uh i just shut down for about 14 years so what did you do during those years i mean you really did disappear where were you well my you know noel paul stuckey from peter paul and mary saved my life he saw that i was dying and he called my parents up in 1970 and uh, said, Mr. and Mrs. Sloan, you have to get your son home, but he doesn't want to leave. So they came, they flew to New York, and uh, they took me home, and uh, they took me back to my childhood house, and uh, I stayed in bed in my bedroom for about 14 years. I mean, did you watch television? Did you? No, I, no, I, was, I was catatonic. 
were doctors brought in? I mean, uh... yeah, I was diagnosed with severe hypoglycemia catatonia, uh, but there was no cure for it. And this is just a, uh, a psychologically derived situation. Well, organic as well. The hypoglycemia. They put me in a couple of mental institutions as well, but that didn't really work. We called it the vegetable garden. <laughs> so how did you snap out of this? I mean, how did that period end? I mean, it's uh, it's horrifying. You know, catatonia is an amazing thing. It's sort of like being in a coma, and yet you're aware of everything, but you can't you can't remember anything. You know, hmm. it's like you know, it's like I'm aware that you're there, but I can't talk, and I can't remember anything that that was just said. What happened was there's a holy man in India by the name of Sai Baba came to me in a dream. Uh, I had never heard of him, and uh, he said, come to me and I will heal you. I go, go, I tell about the story in the book how it, it happened that I was able to get the money to go to India, and I did go to India, and uh, he began to heal me. And within a few few number of years, I was able to walk and talk and uh, began writing songs again. Uh, it's, it was a struggle to get back. I mean, it, it's, it, it's kind of a, a bigger-than-life story. Uh, in, in Catatonia, the man came to you in a dream, and he actually existed, and you found him. Yes, and flew to India, and uh, he uh, came over to me and tapped me on the cheek and said, you're a brave, brave boy. And uh, he said, I'm going to heal you. And uh, and he did. <laughs> and uh, It's unbelievable. You've ma been making music, you know, on and off since then and playing some shows and stuff. And uh, you do have the new book out, What's Exactly the Matter with Me? And it sounds like a, uh, just a must read uh, and a new uh, it really does and a new record called uh, My Beethoven uh, nine original songs uh, based on the real life of Beethoven now we haven't Beethoven has not come into the story yet at all uh, was he a huge influence on you? not at all <laughs> uh, I, I had never really heard Beethoven it just so happened believe it or not that uh <sighs> that I was contacted by him, and he uh, asked me to find out uh, why he tried to commit suicide. And that began an 18-year search. This was before the Internet, so I had to go to the library, and I had to go to every library to find out uh, the story of Beethoven, and then I realized that everything that I had been reading about Beethoven was a lie. It was all written by a guy by the name of Schindler who was fired by Louis six months after he was working for him because he was stealing from him. So I began to I began to learn how to play piano. I didn't know how to play piano, and I began listening to Glenn Gould, and I began to learn how to play piano. And eventually, after 18 years of uh, learning how to uh, compose for an orchestra and play piano and the lyrics, which took so many years to write, because B.B. Uh, King told me once when I was a young kid, he said, Philip, he said, 90% of what you think and what you write is bullshit. He said, you have, to, you have to peel away your soul to get a place that's away from your ego to get to the spiritual center of your being, and that's where, that's where your true lyrics are. 
So that took a lot of years. And uh, I recorded in this little home studio that I, I gradually built up uh, over the years. And this miracle of my Beethoven came out. And the reason I'm calling it my Beethoven is because because the high, because the elitists have hijacked Beethoven, okay, Michael? You know, they get dressed up in tuxedos and they spend $300 for a ticket to go hear Beethoven. Well, you know, Ludwig, who was called Louis by the French, you know, he liked to play in bars. He was just a people person. And another thing about Louis which attracted me was that he was a folk singer. I bet you didn't know that. He always had a guitar with him and he wrote over 400 folk songs. Yeah, I've never heard that about Beethoven. Nobody knows that about Louis. Yeah. He he always played a guitar, and he wrote over 400 folk songs. He wrote Russian folk songs, Hungarian folk songs. Uh, Bobby Burns, the great poet, would send him lyric, and uh, he would write the music to uh, the Bobby Burns, and that would become a folk song. And the other thing that attracted me to Ludwig van Beethoven was uh, he was always considered a Mozart wannabe. He was never really accepted on his own. And I was considered a Bob Dylan wannabe. So there was a lot to attract me to to him. And basically, in the album, I'm writing his life story, but it's actually my own as well. Fascinating. I, I did not know that you didn't play piano prior to this. That's kind of mind-boggling. Uh, so where where do you live nowadays? Well, I've been blessed uh, with a uh, Sai Baba uh, when I had gone back to India a number of times, I asked him, because I was living in a, in a one-room one room apartment uh, surrounded by other people, and I couldn't really play music, and one day I asked him, you know, is there any way, is there a house for me? And he said, yes, there is a house. And uh, within six months, I was able to afford this house that I'm living in and working on the, uh, the Beethoven project, and the sailover CD, which uh, came out, I think, in 2007. What do you say to people that have a that just part of their life is not talking to Beethoven or to you know getting answers from a a, a, a bigger voice? Uh, how do you explain that to people? Uh, it's it's all about love and beauty. I mean, the search in music for me. Uh, is that I found something beautiful in Elvis Presley's voice. I found something beautiful in music, and I wanted to find that beauty within myself to write that. When I discovered Beethoven, I discovered the real heart and soul of beauty. And so I decided to make that my life's work, to discover and write the beauty that God gave me in my heart and soul. And whether I succeeded in that time will tell, but uh, I'd love to give Beethoven back to the people. You know, it's my Beethoven, not their Beethoven. <laughs> uh, so what's next for you? Is there more projects like this in your head, or is there pop songs, or what's the next thing? You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, in, the, uh, I'm in the process of, uh, of uh, touring with the book and with the, uh, the album. It seems that the good Lord has me going out every seven, eight years. You know, I can't tell you why that is, but uh, whenever I perform, you know, people are amazed, you know, that uh, it's a great show because I, I don't perform that often. So I'm just enjoying life and, and performing and, uh, you know, and talking uh, to you, Michael, about, you know, 
uh, a really roller coaster ride of a life, you know. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, tell me when you, uh, I don't know, do you have an iPod? Do you listen to music on that? I used to have an iPod. I don't listen to iPods anymore. And the MP3s are, you know, the MP3s sound really good through earbuds, but come on. I mean, now they're charging, you know, $300 for earbuds. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're, you're still only getting 7% of the actual sound. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I'd rather listen to vinyl if I can. So what do you listen to when you feel like hearing some music? What makes you smile? What do you, what do you like? Uh, early Beatles, uh, of course, Beethoven. Um, practically anything by Beethoven makes him smile because being a musician, you know, if you're listening to a song, you know, you kind of you you kind of go on hold because you know where it's going, you know, chord wise. But with Beethoven, he makes these left turns and these right turns and these U turns, and you just never know where he's going to go. You know, it, he's just such an amazing. He's like so avant garde. I don't know why they call him classical. You know, <laughs> he's playing blues. He's he's playing jelly roll blues. He's playing jazz. He's playing avant-garde, you know, he's outdoing Haydn and Mozart. I mean, he does bring a smile to my face, but I love early Beatles and, you know, um, I like listening to the Mamas and Papas and early Janadine. I like listening to old 60s stuff. Did you manage to save uh, copies of, of all those records? I mean, at the time, were you did you accumulate every release that you had a cut on? I did, but you know, when I was ill, I threw everything away. Oh. I really wanted to. I really wanted to get rid of P.S. Sloan, and I wanted to get rid of my music. So you know, I threw everything in the trash. But fans, you know, really have saved my my musical life. You know, fans found out about it, and you know, began sending me copies of everything. That uh, so, I pretty much have a really good library now of everything. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, of those. It's really not. It's really not my story, Michael. It's really the story of fans, because basically I'm a fan. You know, I've just been gifted with a talent, but to put me above a fan uh, is not where I wanted to be. I'm just basically a fan of music, and it's it's the fans who took all the heat. You know. Yeah. For liking P.F. Sloan. <laughs> Interesting. The Let's talk about can you can you tell me maybe two or three or four songs that you wrote that were turning points throughout your career? Maybe Kick That Little Foot Sally Ann might be the first one. Songs that turned you know, that you said this is something new, you know, where you really discovered something in yourself that didn't that you didn't tap before. Well, definitely Eva Destruction because it, it broke it broke the mold of uh you know most pop songs had, you know, four lines and then a chorus. With Eva Destruction, uh, there were seven lines and then a chorus, and then three lines and a chorus, and then five lines and a chorus. Sins of a Family broke the mold as well. Secret Agent Man came out so smoothly that I was in awe at, at how well everything was sort of like a circular snake. You know, everything seemed to relate back to itself so well, you know, I mean, I think that's the beauty of a lot of Beatles songs as well, you know, and really great written songs, you know, that they're circular, you know, there's, they're seamless. And it's, it's an amazing feeling when you can write, when something like that comes out of you, that's seamless. You know, you look at it with awe and you go, my God, where did that come from? 
Yeah. Uh, tell me about the song In Celebration Of on the new album, My Beethoven. Uh, tell me about that song. When I was very, very ill, and uh, uh, my mother bought me a, a $19 Casio, you know, one of the electronic keyboards, one of the very first ones. Sure. And, you know, it's just like, you know, you know, the size of a bread box. And I would play two songs all the time, Long and Winding Road and uh, A Whiter Shade of Pale. I mean, I would just play that for hours and hours and hours on the keyboard. Got a chance to meet Keith Reed in London uh, during the sailover tour. Keith gave me a lyric, and I was just in awe of Keith Reed because, you know, Whiter Shade of Pale, I thought, was one of the greatest songs ever written. And I made up my mind at that time that I'm going to write something with this lyric that will make Keith proud. And it took, it took uh, nine years to write the, the melody and arrange it and everything like that. But that's the only song in the album that, I'm, I'm, uh, that I didn't write the lyric on. That, that's Keith Reed from Procol Harum. Wow. Amazing. Well, we're going to hear that to end the show. I, I want to ask you, if you, next time you're in New York, if you can bring your guitar and come by the studio, we would love to have you. I think it would be just fascinating. I don't know if you're up for that. but uh, Michael, I would love to. I would love to. All you have to do is ask. Oh, well, next time you're in New York, it's an open invitation. We would just love to have you. Fantastic. So are you... Been, yeah. Are you happy? That's that's kind of the, the basic question. <laughs> You know, that is, that is the, the real question, you know, and the answer is 1,000% yes. The spiritual training as a warrior that I've gone through being with Sai Baba over the last 27 years has taught me uh, the purpose and meaning of life. And uh, that, uh, that the ups and downs of life just don't, uh, just don't interfere with my happiness. It's all part of the play. Everything turns out for the best. It's all for the good. All right. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm definitely going to get the book, of course, but uh, I appreciate you taking your time for me this morning, and I'm glad we could finally connect. I think it was meant to be. Yeah, I do, too. Michael, what a pleasure it is talking to you. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. I know a man who lives a lie. He's passing time until he dies. I know a man who stays at home He's scared of ending up alone I know a man who has great wealth He only thinks about himself And watch dogs become lap dogs Nobody's safe when good people are Sad environment, a bug-ridden tenement And 
when they couldn't pay the rent It's cause her father was out getting sicker Out of stones been cast in blood Thicker than water And the sins of a family Fall on the daughter All the sins of a family Fall on the daughter She had been around more than any girl over 30 And the high IQs who condemned her knew She's a product of full heredity, yeah It's a fictitious fact when you fall on your back You can backtrack failure with inspection Without exception Sins of a family fall on the daughter. All the sins of a family fall on the daughter. Then expect to die With the soul in paradise You know you gotta pay the price Like you are Blood's thicker than water And the sins of a family Fall on the daughter All the sins of a family Fall on the daughter She's watching the clock all day long I got a girl who'd do anything for me Expecting my knock on her door I've been pitching rats three days or more Lord, she's everything I'm living for So what am I doing here with you? Doing things that I should not do What am I doing here with you?
As an electric amp Everybody famous is gonna be there I wonder what Sonny and Cher are gonna wear For hair Lovable Linda and Betty Best We're on opposite sides of a toothpaste test Linda said I got seven cavities less But Betty's got 10% more bad breath What a loser My brother Bill, he married a horse Everyone's pushing him to get a divorce Bill said, hey man She may be fat and ugly, but I ain't no jerk But just the dress a month, she rides me on her back to work I bought the greatest watch last week It does everything but eat and sleep It's dustproof, it's waterproof, it's shockproof It's guaranteed it cannot be destroyed It was stolen Two old ladies sitting in sand Each one wishing the other was a man Well now she may be old, about 74 years But she's not too old to shift her gears There she goes I was sitting in the shower watching a TV show When a man comes on and says, hey, the son I should know He says, I'm living my life in a Kleenex box He says, look at your collars, you need more chloride Now I know he's a communist Goodbye, girl, I'm leaving you You can save your funny 
there's no use crying If I stayed with you, I'd have to be out of my mind You treated me like your old hound dog It wasn't very nice When I looked to you for affection You just kicked me once or twice Well, I can't make the trip I'm feeling bugged all the time So, you had me pretty well faked out, babe But like the wind, I'm gonna blow You can tell your life that our next guy waiting in line If I stayed with you, I'd have to be out of my mind Just a crying shame I don't know how I felt for you I must have been a saint But I don't need glasses To show me I've been blind If I stayed with you I'd have to be out of my mind If I stayed with you I'd have to be out of my mind Cause 
Yeah.